This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Paul Kingor is professor of political science, and he's also senior director of the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. He earned his master's degree from the American University, his PhD from the University of Pittsburgh. He's a renowned scholar of the Cold War and communism and the American presidency. His book, God and Ronald Reagan, was a New York Times bestseller. He's written many other books, and we've had a previous conversation for Thinking in Public. His most recent book is The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration, which is the topic of our conversation today. Professor Paul Kingor, welcome to Thinking in Public. Dr. Mueller, it's great to be with you. I think we did an interview a few years ago. That's one right. Of my books, and I'm a big fan. Love your show. Thank you. And uh, and always enjoy these conversations. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, Paul, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. I have to tell you that when I saw the title of your latest book, The Devil and Karl Marx, I was, of course, doubly interested. And, uh, you know, looking at your book, I was actually amazed by how uh, considerable in size it is and dense with material, because uh, even as someone who's uh, studied Marx uh, as a part of a larger study of the intellectual landscape for, for four decades or more, frankly, I was surprised how much material there is just dealing directly with Karl Marx and the devil. Now, at this point in your research and academic work, did this come as something of a surprise to you? I'd say a little bit. So, I mean, there was there. I knew a pretty good deal about it already, and I had been thinking for years about about writing a book on this. And you know, I'm sure that you, Al, you you probably you were familiar with with uh, Reverend Richard Wormbrand, the the founder of uh, Voice of the Martyrs. He did the book Tortured for Christ in the 1970s. He also did a book called Marx and Satan, and that was I think mid 80s. And I have that. I have it marked up. Also, I read Paul Johnson's Intellectuals, which had a chapter on Karl Marx. And the, the, one, the one book that I wasn't really familiar with, I mean, I had seen it referenced in, by Johnson, but it was the first time I dug into it, was, was Robert Payne, who was a biographer of Marx, just a, just a really impressive British intellectual, kind of a thoughtful man of, of the arts, of letters, of, of, of play, you know, a, a theater critic, drama, uh, you know, English, uh, you know, very learned individual, in no way any kind of ideologue. And he did a number of biographies of Marx. He did one in 1968 that was published by Simon & Schuster. He did another that was published by New York University Press. And he's really the guy who, who found a lot of this. I mean, Marx's writings about the devil were, were first discovered by his original biographer, a guy named Franz Mehring. And I know you probably want to get to this, so I might be talking a little bit out of order, but but when when Franz Mehring discovered these writings, he told Marx's daughter, <laughs> he, he said, "You should not let this stuff see the light of day." I, I mean, this is this this bad. You know, this this is really quite frightening stuff. So I, I I knew about those things, but once I started digging into a bunch of Marx biographies with a specific intent, you know how this goes doing research on something like this. Where you really start mining and looking for the material, right? Like I did, um, I did a book, God and Ronald Reagan, back in 2004. I think I had read every biography of Reagan, and so I knew some of the religious stuff, but not until I went back to Edmund Morris's Dutch, till I went to Lou Cannon's biographies and looked for every religious reference, right? Went back and read all the letters, went to the Reagan Library, and then you line it all up, and you've got this giant puzzle thrown out on the floor. And you start lining up the puzzles and you say, wow, there's a lot here. No, there's there really is. a lot here. You know, so, one yeah, question uh, that uh, as an historian and historical theologian, I try to employ is uh, asking whether a question is anachronistic and out of its time. And, and so there's a sense in which uh, we might say that uh, the question of something like uh, an obsession on, uh, uh, of the devil on the part of Karl Marx that uh, if that's all of a sudden discovered now and considered troubling now by Professor Paul Kingor at uh, Grove City College, well, that's not that significant an issue. But if it turned out to have been significant to people at the time, 
uh, that that adds historical cogency and and importance. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I appreciate you mentioning Mayring because he he very clearly identified the problem uh, dealing with the primary source material and uh, and as you say was so alarmed by it he uh, did everything he could to prevent the publication. Well, and and kudos to a a Marxist scholar at the Marx Engels Institute named David Ryazanov. Who, who discovered this material and 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 preserved it, made sure that it that it was known. And uh, non kudos here to all the recent Marx biographers, hagiographers, who who um, Dr. Mahler they ignore all of this stuff. I mean they they ignore all of it, all of it. And and I mean they certainly ignore the poetry. And if they do come across certain things that that I included in the book, I mean to be fair, some of these things are. Are, are reported by Marx biographers Francis Wien and a few others, but but they'll they'll downplay it and they'll almost give it a kind of wink wink. They'll think it's playful or endearing. <laughs> use words like that, right? Or or cute or kind of uh, it's it, it's it's strange. It's 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 really oh here he is and his friend describes him as eyes like a wet goblin. <laughs> you know, look at this nice little horseplay between Marx and this individual. Horseplay. Look at it. I mean, I mean, the, the guy is describing Marx as if he's possessed here. So let, let, it, let's talk about that. Let's uh, let's yeah. actually uh, uh, bring our uh, our uh, audience in on the uh, the core issue, and that is that your argument is that Karl Marx had an obsession uh, with Satan, and clearly, even as he uh, sought in every way possible to kill off God and uh, and even organized religion, he. Uh, he had enormous sympathy for the devil and clearly, in some sense, believed in the devil. Now, we're going to talk about what that may have meant, but he clearly believed in a personification of evil. Yeah, and, and like some of his poems, for example, and, and, you know, and, I, and I will say this, it's often hard to know if, um, if, if what he's writing about, like any writer, any poet, he's internalizing, he's projecting, it's what he believes. It's what a character believes. But when you see the whole composite, this isn't like Edgar Allan Poe writing a scary story, right? You can see in Mark's case, it's very reflective of what he believes. And and I and I opened the book with a couple stanzas from a, a couple of different poems, and and the one from the player, he, he says, uh, Mark says, "Thus heaven I forfeited. I know it full well. My soul, once true to God, is chosen for hell." And and I, I think that one, Al, is 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 pretty autobiographical because his soul was once true to God, and heaven he did forfeit. Now I don't know if it was chosen for hell. I think you know he he made the choice that he made. He made the choice to to reject God. And then there's a second one that I that I open up with, and and he talks about. He says, "See this sword, this blood dark sword, which stabs unerringly within thy soul." Where did I get this soul, this this sword? The prince of darkness, right? The prince of darkness sold it to me. The hellish vapors rise and fill the brain till my heart goes mad, right? Till 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 I go utterly insane. So really, really some chilling poetry. And also, too, th these poems and his plays, they're filled with destruction, death, suicide packs. And of all things, I, I mean, you're you're a historian. Can you name for me any individual that you could think of in all of history who had two daughters who killed themselves in suicide pacts with their husbands, of all things? And 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 Marx writes about you know fair maidens, pale maidens, suicide pacts. Marx had two daughters who killed themselves in suicide pacts with their husbands. One of which. Uh, Marx was quite cruel to Paul Lafargue because he was partly Cuban, and Marx was uh, was an out and out vile racist, and he referred to Paul as the gorilla. And there are letters between him and Engels going back and forth. And you're and you're using that term in the uh, the context of their own writings. Yeah. yeah, these guys were atheistic, materialist, Darwinian evolutionists. And here we get back to another one of these sort of skeletons in the progressive closet, right? Along with eugenics and so forth. And they, um, you know, when they forsake God, Darwin became. In fact, I quote in the book Trotsky, who said, 
uh, Darwin did away with all my ideological prejudices. He opened the universe to, to me. And, and it was at Marx's funeral where, where Engels gave the eulogy and he quoted Darwin. And he said, Marx is doing for, uh, for Darwinians as social sciences what Darwin did for the physical sciences. And, and he also, um, Engels at the funeral of Marx's wife, quoted Darwin as well. So they were proud Darwinian evolutionists. Yeah, and they were uh, absolute materialists. I mean, that's, that's the point, isn't it? Uh, you yes. know, Darwin, it was Richard Dawkins says that uh, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. I mean, materialism really becomes possible if you have a cosmology uh, that affirms uh, materialism. And until you had, you know, we'll use Darwin here, not just for Darwin and his own writings, but for Darwin as, a, as an intellectual movement. Um, materialism now has a metaphysic, an ontology. And, uh, and thus, uh, you, you really have to have Darwin before you can have Marx in this sense. That's right. That's right. And, and Marx, in his famous Opiate of the Masses essay, and I've heard people say from time to time, including a number of Christians, oh, that's really not that bad what Marx is saying. You know, I understand what he's saying here. He's speaking of the opiate of the masses like a drug, right? And, you know, let's be honest, for, for Christians, and this is okay, religion's kind of a crutch, you know. We Christians think it's a real crutch, right? It's something that we could lean on, but it's kind of a crutch. So Marx isn't that far off here. No, no, no. If you actually read the opiate of the masses essay, you know, he refers to religion as as the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless oh, world, the soul yeah. of soulless conditions, right? It's, it's this grunt of despair. Well, he saw it and as a fatal delusion. Of the not, not, not as a, an anecdotally, uh, you know, uh, a diversionary false belief. He saw it as uh, a, a fatal delusion. The fact that humanity can never be humanity so long as it, uh, it included an affirmation of deity and uh, and of course the, the problem is every time you talk about Marx, we really have to talk about Marx and somebody, Marx and Engels, or Marx and Lenin. And uh, by the time you get to uh, 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 Marxism Leninism, uh, you you've got Lenin with saying that uh, all worship of divinity is a necrophilia. You know, it's a it's a worship of a dead thing, uh, yes. of a dead god. Yes. But all of that's implicit and uh, indeed explicit in Marx himself. That's right. Yeah, Lenin said there is nothing more abominable than religion. Yeah, uh, the, any worship of a divinity is a necrophilia. Yeah, and that's very much an extension of Marx. And also, too, you mentioned earlier the fascination with the devil. Um, I quote at length Mikhail Bakunin, who was a friend of Marx until eventually he and Marx couldn't stand one another, which was true for Marx and pretty much everybody. I mean, everybody at some point you know, Marx slung so much vitriol at everybody that, that, that nobody could get along with. But Mikhail Bakunin refers to, the, to Satan as this glorious rebel. So in a way, they, while they're rejecting God, they, they commend Satan. They, they hail Satan. And, and Bakunin does this in a way that Saul Alinsky does as well. You know, Saul Alinsky dedicates rules to radicals to that, to that, uh, that first rebel who rebelled against God and won, won for himself his own kingdom, Lucifer, as he refers to him. So they, they like Satan as this rebellious character who, who shakes his fist at God. And that's what Marx did, too. You see this in Marx's plays and his poems. I mean, Marx, Marx wanted to burn down the house. You know, you know, Marx, in, you know, his characters in the end of these plays, they are standing there in the pit of these embers, right? Flames all around them. Marx had a favorite line, all of his biographers said, from Goethe's Faust, the Mephistopheles character, the devil character, the demon character. Everything that exists deserves to perish. I mean, imagine that, right? If they asked you or I, do you, do you have a favorite line? We'd some, give a scripture verse, right? I might say something like, you know, be not afraid, something like that. Marx said, ah, yeah, ah, Goethe, Faust, Mephistopheles, everything that exists deserves to perish. That was, that was Marx's favorite. You know, there's a sense in which, looking at intellectual history, uh, you can trace a Bakunin uh, easier than a Marx on this. Uh, there is a strain in Russian thought, uh, Russian mythological thought, of fascination with uh, demons and the devil. Uh, this even shows up in uh, a great work by uh, Dostoevsky. Uh, the Russian anarchists, uh, 
certainly included kind of a demonology in their uh, in in their thought. But Marx was German living in London. Where does this come from for Marx? I mean, it, it's it. I I thought of this reading your book. It's just hard for me to come up with a with an English pedigree for this thought. Yeah, or or for that matter, German. I mean, he comes yeah. from this. So he's born May fifth, eighteen eighteen, in the city of Trier in Germany. Mm-hmm. Trier is T R I E R. Extremely religious, um, one of one of the most Roman Catholic cities mm-hmm. in in all Absolutely of Germany. And beautiful, and at that time, very devout. I mean, probably at least ninety percent of the people in the town were practicing Roman Catholics. The great cathedral at, at, at Trier is a magnificent work. It goes back to the three hundreds. I mean, of all things, it was it was built, financed by by Helena, Saint Helena, mother of Augustine, of, of all things. And she had made the famous pilgrimage to the Holy Land, where she brought back what she believed were certain relics, the, the crown of thorns, which is believed to be in Notre Dame. And, and also she brought back the holy robe, the coat that, what she believed was the holy coat, the robe that Jesus wore on the way to the crucifixion, that at the foot of the cross, the Roman soldiers cast lots for. That's actually there. And, and by the way, the devil character in one of Marx's plays, Marx actually drew out the wardrobe for his characters as well in one of these plays. And while he's sawing on his violin and summoning up the powers of darkness, he's wearing the holy robe of Christ, of all things. So, so, so Marx grows up literally in the shadow of the cathedral at Trier. His father, like, um, like many Jews in the city, converted to Christianity. The father became Lutheran. Uh, which was which was kind of an odd choice. I mean, it's not an odd choice because if you wouldn't have picked Catholicism, you'd have probably picked Lutheranism. But Marx had uncles who converted who chose Catholicism. So most people that converted chose Catholicism. And probably, as the Marx biographers said, probably did this at least in part under social pressures that Jews were were, were facing in the, in those days. But the father told the son, he said, he said, you know, Carl, religion's good. I, I, I mean, it's it's good to believe in something. Other than yourself, right? It's it's good to believe it. Good to believe in a deity. I quote at length this ominous letter, March second, eighteen thirty seven, from from his father, and and he asks, you know, that heart of yours, son, right? What's troubling it? Is is it governed by a demon? Yeah, is it governed by a spirit? And is that that spirit heavenly or is it Faustian? You know, uh, uh, as we think about this, Paul Johnson, who you mentioned. Uh, gives attention to Marx in more than one of his works. But uh, one of the things he points out is that uh, the Marxists uh, offer a sanitized Marx in which they basically don't uh, confront head-on his misanthropy. I mean, his deep, deep, deep hatred for virtually all humanity. You know, he's he's calling to for humanity to unite in this communist movement, but he hates humanity. And it began with his own his own family. He hated his own family. And I mean, it's a loathing that's almost impossible to describe. But, uh, but you, just, you do describe it in this book. He, he was a very angry man. Yeah, yeah, very angry. All the people around him couldn't, couldn't stand him. And, and, and Ingalls, I, I mean, Ingalls was one of the only people that was really able to hang in there with him at all. And, and in fact, the only reason that Marx was able to do what he did was, was because of the inheritance that Engels had inherited from Engels' own uh, wealthy capitalist and uh, Christian uh, conservative father, and which is ironic, too, because of the 10-point plan in the Communist right. Manifesto, point three calls for abolition of all right of inheritance. Except mine. So what, yeah, yeah, right, exactly, except mine. Yeah, what, what, what complete hypocrites they were. Marx, after... Uh, you know, he's just a miser after mooching as much money as he could from his from his mother and father. They finally cut him off, and then it was left to Ingalls to subsidize him. And 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 you know, Ingalls was offended at how Marx did this, but Ingalls did so really to help out Marx because of Marx's wife, Marx's family. Ingalls felt bad for Marx's family. Marx refused to get a job. He refused to work. Both Marx's poor, long-suffering wife, Jenny. His mother, both they both expressed the wish that Carl would start earning some capital rather than just writing about capital. I mean, children in the Marx household died arguably from malnutrition, exposure to the elements. Uh, it, it's 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 horrible what 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 happened. Um, but yeah, yeah, misanthrope. He he did. He 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 hated people. People disliked him. 
very, very difficult to get along with. Not a nice, pleasant individual. Yeah, you know, I uh, I've been to the reading room, and uh, you can where he worked, and you can just imagine this smelly guy was how he's referred to. You know, this uh, this misanthrope. You know, writing this work that would literally change the course of world history and in horrible ways. Uh, but no one wanted to be around him uh, you know, at the time. Uh, I want to track another argument with you. I am a theologian. So uh, I, I would make the argument that in many, many cases, if not most, of this kind of horrifying idea coming from a Western source, Western civilization, uh, it's, it's a second generation fulfillment of, a, of an earlier generation's theological problem. So, uh, you know, in the case of so many, uh, you can trace either a form of uh, Protestant liberalism, uh, Enlightenment theology, or Catholic modernism, or something similar to that. And, uh, and so in Karl Marx's sense, he, his grandfather was a rabbi, uh, but his father was a convert, not just to Protestantism as a cultural reality, but to liberal Protestantism. Uh, he basically bought into the entire Kantian system. He did not think of Christianity as uh, a body of truth. He thought of Christianity as a culture uh, with which he would identify. The God of whom he speaks is a God who is basically uh, an ethical principle uh, and, and moral principle. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's just, I think, very, very uh, troubling to me when you consider the course of theological history that you have these uh, liberal fathers who give birth to demonic children. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, no, you're right yeah. on. You're, you're absolutely spot on. That, that's an excellent description of where the father was coming from. And the father would read to him Rousseau and um, um, the, the French writer um, who, who, who Marx could recite off the top of his head. Why can't, why can't I think who this is? Voltaire. They could, they could, they could, they could recite Voltaire. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very much, um, yeah, liberalism, liberal Protestantism, probably close to, at the very least, very unorthodox. Uh, this, this was true of Joseph Stalin as well. I mean, Stalin, when he went off to seminary, went to this very liberal um, Russian Orthodox seminary that had heavily imbibed in, 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 in evolution. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're, at, you're absolutely right. It's a frightening pattern, and uh, it's just all the more frightening when you consider how many Protestants and Catholics flirt with liberal theology as if it's, uh, as if it's an intellectual option. <laughs> Well, and let yeah. me add to this too that the a very mm -hmm. major influence on Marx. So when Marx goes off to college, and at that point he still believed in God, and one of the most toxic, pernicious influences on him was a mentor, a professor named Dr. Bruno Bauer, who was a professor of theology, probably some form of like uh, systematic theology, and he was an atheist. <laughs> so you can see how, how you know things never change, right? I, I, I mean, I, I've had uh, I've had parents at, at at my at my church come up to me and say, um, "Oh, it's okay. I, I know the junior went to this. He, he he's gone to this this very liberal university, but he's taking a course on theology first semester. He'll be okay." And then and then I ask you know, around Thanksgiving, "Hey, how's how's he doing? Oh, not too good. How's the theology course?" Oh, the theology course, it's taught by an atheist. It's like, well, of course it is. We think it was to be taught by C.S. Lewis. Yeah, of course it's taught. But, but this, this guy, his name was Bruno Bauer. He was an atheist, and he was also very anti-Semitic. And he and his favorite student, Marx, they end up founding or starting, launching a journal called The Archives of Atheism. And the two of them, and here's one of these things that I found in, in one of the Marx biographers, a, a very good one, a very good, uh, honest biographer. In one instance, they, uh, he and Bruno Bauer ride into the local village on Palm Sunday on, on, on donkeys, uh, mocking Christ's entrance into Jerusalem. And, 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 the, and another, actually, there's actually two biographers describe this. The other one who does describes it as, oh, <laughs> Ah, how fun this is, right? And here they were too, you know, rollicking along and, you know, making noises in church. Oh, how endearing, how fun. What a card, Carl. Yeah, you know, uh, by the time you get to the, uh, the, say, 
early decades of the 20th century, it's already clear that for many, uh, German Protestantism has become largely culture Protestantismus. Uh, mm, mm-hmm, uh, right. And uh, it's just uh, it's, it's just now cultural Protestantism and, and much of Catholicism has become a cultural Catholicism. There's no binding theology. And so by the time you get to the uh, the the late 19th century and the the debacles of the 20th century, much of what's referred to as theology isn't actually theology in any legitimate sense at all. Well, and how yeah. and how much of this? Uh, I mean, I I don't want to pick on Germany, I guess, too much, but look at how much came out of Germany in this time, right? I mean, wow. So, so Marx and Engels, and and then then you go you know, go into the in the tens and the twenties, and and uh, the Frankfurt School, you know, the the you know, the the Marxists who who fo- focused on culture, right? Um, you know, cultural Marxism. These guys were Freudian Marxists of, of all things. Uh, Herbert Marcuse, Wilhelm Reich, who wrote the Sexual Revolution, who tried to create this this fusion between Freudianism and, and Marxism. So yes, yeah, so so many of these ideas crawled out of Germany at that time. And you would talk about liberal Catholicism. Look, like, you know, look at the bishops in Germany right now. And and one of them, by the way, I'm not making this up. His name is Cardinal Marx, and and he's 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 the worst. He's he's the most liberal, heterodox. He's even giving Pope Francis fits of 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 of, of all things from the left. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Even Pope Francis is like, whoa, pull it back here. Of all, of all, you know, I, I didn't expect this of of of, of all things. So yeah, uh, kind of liberal. This liberal strand, liberal theological strand, Germany, eighteen hundreds on. Th- this this has been a very destructive influence. Well, this is where this is where the uh, biblical criticism was born. This is where uh, you know the obvious Schleiermacher, the father of uh, liberal theology, as a movement reducing uh, the essence of Christianity to experience and feeling and utter subjectivity. You know, this is the the, the ultimate victory of Kant. Uh, in his distinction between the phenomenal and the noumenal, uh, rendering Christianity nothing more than a spirituality and a culture, and uh, and it did affect both Protestants and uh, and Roman Catholics to the extent that uh, by the time you get to Marx, as you pointed out, he had a professor who was an atheist, and you know, furthermore, uh, just to just to be clear, it would be one thing if those ideas stayed in Germany. But uh, by the time you get to the late 19th century, they're already thoroughly ensconced in the most prestigious American institutions and churches. Right, right. Yeah, I quote in uh, right up front early on in the book, it's, it's Earl Browder, who was one of the original chairmen of Communist Party USA, right after William Z. Foster. By the way, the dialogue, the interview between Hamilton Fish, Congressman Hamilton Fish and William Z. Foster in the book is amazing. People read that, they'll be, they'll be floored. But Earl Browder is speaking at Union Theological Seminary, and it's 1935, and he says to them, he said, you might be surprised to know that we have preachers, preachers who are active, preachers who are active in the Communist Party, who are actually members of the Communist Party. And, and, and that's striking, Dr. Mahler. I mean, you know, you'd think, yeah, well, I know there were, there were preachers who were what American communists called suckers, right? Who were dupes, who were misled. But for but for Browder to stand up there and say, no, we got preachers who, who are actual party members. But we can draw a line there, because if indeed uh, you, uh, you buy the logic of uh, Walter Rauschenbusch and the social gospel, which transformed uh, American Protestantism in a, in a liberal direction, especially in the North in the beginning, and especially at a place like Union Theological Seminary, then, uh, then if you buy into uh, a social gospel, then Marx appears to be, and indeed this is what the Latin American liberation theologians claimed, Marx just shows up as the praxis uh, to, uh, to be applied to your liberal theology and abandonment of, of biblical Christianity. Well, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, and liberation theology, this would spring up in the 60s and 70s, and a lot of this, I mean, the, the Jesuits, right, in the 70s and, and 1980s. Uh, it, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's interesting that one German theologian who kind of goes to the left and then saw how bad this got in the time of Vatican II was, was Joseph Ratzinger, right, Cardinal Ratzinger. 
And then he later on, he ends up becoming conservative and orthodox uh, when he headed up the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith under John Paul II, who of all things goes to Nicaragua and other places in Central America and slaps down uh, you know, liberal cardinals and bishops who are flirting with liberation theology. So of all things, it takes a, a German theologian there, Cardinal Ratzinger, to become Pope Benedict XVI, to try to bring back orthodoxy. And now of all things, here you are with a Jesuit pope who is um, who, who, for the record, rejects liberation theology, but you can see is still influenced by that whole milieu, um, very much so. Yeah, I would say that uh, formally he rejects it structurally and substantially <laughs> he, he does not. And of course, yeah. uh, you are a Roman Catholic. Uh, Catholic. I am. Uh, I'm president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and very much a Protestant. Uh, but we uh, we share many common concerns uh, along these lines. And uh, you know, it, it 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 gets to the point now. And by the way, I'm probably the only Baptist seminary president you're ever going to meet who spent time during my doctoral work in a Roman Catholic institution uh, studying uh, Cardinal Ratzinger. Oh, uh, amongst yeah. others, yeah, his uh, writings are brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're 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 really outstanding. And I and I and I've I've um, listened to some of your podcasts, watched some of your podcasts on Pope Francis. So we got to be careful. We go to quite quite a, quite a tangent on that. But uh, yeah, he's very much a product of that that whole you know, Latin American left right. situation. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you know, the uh, the fact is that when I'm talking with you, I want to chase so many points, but you mentioned Union Theological Seminary, and that is the, that right. is just the fountainhead of Protestant <laughs> liberalism in the United States. But it's also physically located in Morningside Heights, uh, very close to Columbia University. And in two of your previous books, y- you have pointed to a phenomenon that uh, has caught my attention long ago, and that is that for some reason— Columbia University turned out to be the nexus for so many of the most toxic ideas in American culture, and in particular, the open advocacy of Marxism. Yes. Oh, so many, uh, so many different individuals who went hard left. Some of the most famous communists that we know of in America in the 20th century, who and who became anti-communists, some of them from a theological point of view. Whitaker Chambers. I mean, Whitaker Chambers goes into Columbia University as this like Taft Republican and you know, ends up by the time that he's done at the end of the decade, he's, 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 he's an editor for new masses of all things. And the Soviet ends up, Yeah. Ends up spying for the Soviets yeah. of all things. Thomas Merton, uh, you know, who, you know, it, he became a communist at Columbia and then a later leaves that become, becomes a monk. Uh, Bella Dodd, who I talk about in the book, all it took was, she and her friend uh, Ruthie Goldstein to take a summer class at Columbia University after she was in Hunter College, and sweet little uh, Maria Isabella Assunta, this Picerno, this nice little Italian girl from New York, ends up becoming a Marxist who who claims or reportedly claimed that she outplaced a thousand communist men in seminaries, Catholic seminaries in the 30s. And so <laughs> it's, it's I mean, what happened at Columbia? Is, is really extraordinary. And I think part of that too is, uh, and I quote in the book, and I've quoted in previous books, it, the FBI was able to document this. Literally half of the Communist Party members in the United States in the 1950s lived in New York. They, they, they lived in New York. They had, they had New York City zip codes, and it was, it was quite literally 50%. Well, in Columbia. So, so it was a yeah. hotbed. Columbia, oddly enough, we started, of course, as an Anglican college for boys right. and young men, you know, King's College, because uh, right. it was quite literally the King's possession. Uh, and, uh, and, and then it became, of course, later, you know, you have the, uh, the, the whole uh, uh, social justice movement uh, and cultural Marxism, which, yes, is a term I use without apology, because it is a thing. Uh, and Columbia becomes so centered in that. And then, you know, I, I, I don't want to follow. I'm not implying that Barack Obama uh, is a communist. Let's be clear about that. But it's not accidental that Barack Obama transfers from uh, Occidental College to Columbia University to the very place where, where that is so much a part of the ethos. And it's not just it's not just I want to be clear. It's not just communism, but it is basically the idea of uh a very liberal uh, social organizing uh, praxis that is very much a part of the ethos and culture of Columbia University. 
when he wrote in Dreams from My Father about, mm-hmm. about going to Columbia and attending socialist conferences mm-hmm. and hanging out with socialist professors. So yeah, yeah, no, he very he, he admits that. You know, another character here has popped into my mind a couple of times as you said this, and also as you mentioned social justice, the uh, probably the most damaging theologian of, of the day was the Reverend Harry Ward, who was who was Methodist, and he headed the group Methodist Federation for Social Action, it was called, which was probably like, you know, today they probably call it the Methodist Federation for Social Justice. He and uh, Roger Baldwin were the two founders of the ACLU, and uh, and also too one of the original founding board members of the ACLU. You can't make this up. Was William Z. Foster, the first head of the Communist Party USA, of of of, of all things. But but Harry Ward, who was who was called uh, known as uh, by Manning Johnson, called him the Red Dean of clergy, in in the United States. He's somebody who who was. Manny Johnson and others said was actually a party member. So that's somebody, he's quite a case. He very, he very well may have been faking his Christianity all the while in order to do what he did. I'm and not even sure he had to. some enormously influential front yeah. groups. Yeah, I'm not even sure he had the, to fake it. Yeah. Because by then, liberal Protestantism was so devoid of theology and any kind of significant truth claim or moral claim that uh, you didn't have to fake being a liberal Protestant because it didn't require anything. Uh, yeah. You know, and, uh, and, and we just forget how dominant that establishment was in creating the American elite. Uh, I mean, the, the, oh, vir- virtually... Well, yeah, but yeah. Uh, William Z. Foster, though, said under, under oath to Congress, he told Hamilton Fish, uh, uh, Hamilton Fish said, could, could, could you be a religious believer and be a party member? And, and Foster said, well... You know that'd be pretty odd. Uh, I guess you could theoretically, but you would need to be in the process of liquidating those religious superstitions, right? So you wonder how somebody like a Harry Ward really could even be um, a communist, because really, like Marx said, communism begins where atheism begins. You really cannot be a Christian. No, and that that helps bring us back to uh, kind of the first question and even the title of your book and the purpose of of writing your most uh, recent book, The Devil and Karl Marx. So, you know, people today, especially young people, uh, attracted, we are told, and uh, and I actually believe this, uh, to socialism in unprecedented numbers, Americans who seem to have uh, forgotten uh, the entire 20th century. Uh, and uh, but you, you you look at this and you recognize that that atheism was not a factor in Marx's thought. Atheism is the a priori, uh, because if there is any ontological God, uh, then then you cannot have the worldview of Marxism. And I, I think that's what that's what so many Americans. Uh, young and old, frankly, just don't recognize that 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 the the way I would put it as a theologian is is that the atheism is a priori to Marxism. It is, yeah, and a priori. Is, so again, Marx says communism begins where atheism begins, and and you know, you you need to be an atheist first in order to be a communist, and they believe that. Um, I quote Nikolai Bukharin, the founding editor of Pravda, and he and he he said religion and communism, Christianity and compo- communism are incompatible. Uh, you know, Christianity, religion must be fought at the tip of the spear, at the at the tip of the bayonet. Uh, again, like Lenin said, all worship of a divinity is a, is a necrophilia. Um, speaking again of the Jesuits, there was a her- her- a horrific piece, July 2019, in America Magazine, which is the flagship publication of the Jesuits, called "The Catholic Case for Communism." Now, now that that quite literally could have gotten them probably excommunicated in, in 1949 under Pius XII's uh, papal decree on communism. And, and not only would the church have said in those days, wait a second, Catholic case for communism, y- you can't be a Catholic and a communist. In fact, Pope Pius, the, Pope Pius XI and Quadragesimo Ano said, one cannot be at the same time a socialist and a Christian. The, the, two, the, two, are, the two are incompatible. So not only would the church have said that, the communists would have said that. The communists would have walked into into the offices of American Magazine and said, "What are you guys talking about? Uh, the Catholic case for communism, the Christian case for communism? These are incompatible." 
are you out of your minds? What are you, what are you reading? What are you smoking? No, no, uh, you're exactly right. Except we have to add to that, that one of the axioms of, uh, of applied Marxism was that one could misrepresent Marxism uh, insofar as it would advance the Marxist political aims. And so I, I've seen that in my own lifetime, where, you know, people who actually well, advocate for a, a genuine Marxism uh, they mispresent and misrepresent Marxism, especially to religious people, because as, uh, as you use the word dupes, uh, it's, a, it's a horrifyingly condescending word, but it's often true. Uh, they would find uh, fellow travelers uh, amongst uh, religious people. Now, this is crucial. Yeah, so I think it's part, uh, part three of the book, and I go through Earl Browder's outstretched hand effort in the 1930s. So, so yeah, the Communist Party did a major about-face where, where, the, where they realized that attacking Christianity, declaring a war on religion, was absolutely and utterly counterproductive. And if they were going to have, they're going to make any inroads at all, especially in the United States, which was such a religious country. I mean, they, you know, they looked at the mainline denominations. They looked at 18 million Catholics Al, be, be in New York City between 110th and 59th Street, or not 18 million, uh, that was nationally, but um, hundreds of thousands. And, they, and they, they said to themselves, if we could sucker, you know, Bella Dodd called them suckerless, right? If we could get even 1% of these people, we'll explode our membership. I mean, we're struggling to get 50,000 Communist Party USA members. So they started singing a different tune. This was the whole United Front effort, which was led by J.B. Matthews. By the way, J.B. Matthews, I think he was another Union Theological Seminary product, right? And so, so they led that effort in the 1930s. So that began, indeed, an effort to lie, to conceal, to, to deceive. As Manning Johnson said, said, the devil doth quote scripture. Uh, that led to a long press process of misleading, and they had enormous success, especially when they sought to create front groups like the American League Against War and Fascism, right? To which Fulton Sheen said, I have an idea. If you change your name to the American League Against Communism and Fascism, <laughs> then we'll join your group, right? But, but that, that's not what it is. So they would, uh, they would create these names. There's a, what's in a name? A lot. And look at a name today like Black Lives Matter, right? I mean, the, the name is brilliant. Who could possibly oppose that, right? You know, who would say black lives don't matter? Nobody. So, uh, you know, I'm not comparing it to the American League Against War and Fascism, but the point is that, that they, they realize the importance of proper names, sloganeering, and these communists in the 30s were outstanding at deception and disinformation and manipulation. Well, they, they treated it as an art form with everything as a, a means to the end, and uh, the end justifies the means. And so, I mean, that's one of the first things I was taught about communism as a young boy in the public schools in the 1960s. At least they taught us what, what to listen for. Uh, I had a Marxist teacher uh, at one point, and, uh, and I, he could never have, I think, been clear in his Marxism, you know, publicly, but nonetheless was, and, uh, and, and frankly, uh, caused me to think a lot, but, uh, and, and, and in college, uh, a professor who said to me, basically, uh, we don't have to destroy religion. Religion's destroying itself. And I, I, by the way, again, as a conservative, I have to say, uh, there's a lot of evidence for him to have confidence, but, uh, he said that the, the thing is, he said, Marx took religion too seriously. And I thought, well, that's interesting, uh, and especially relevant to our conversation today. What he meant was that uh, that they didn't have to destroy the church to bring about a communist revolution. All they had to do was force the church into acquiescence. Mm, yeah, or or confusion. Yeah. Or um, yeah, that's right. Although although what Marx said, I mean, Marx said, uh, you know, Marx in a letter to Arnold Rouge called for the ruthless criticism of everything that exists, right? The ruthless criticism of everything that exists. On pages 383 to 384 of this book, I reiterated a bunch of those different quotes from throughout, throughout, from throughout the book. I thought it was really important to wrap them up in the conclusion, and they're, they're in bullets. And one of them is that 
Um, communism represents the most radical rupture in traditional relations. Yeah, pages 383 to 384. And this is in the concluding lines of the Communist Manifesto. Everybody thinks uh, workers of the world unite. We have nothing to lose but our chains, all those, all those different lines. But there's a line in the end there where, where Marx and Engels write, the communism calls for the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions, right? The forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. So they realized that you had to take out God. You had to take down God. You had to remove God. Once you raise that foundation, once you destroyed you know, the words in the manifesto, all morality, all religion, then you could stand there like Marx did in the embers of that burnt down house with your fist in the air. Everything that exists deserves to perish, right? And now we can begin our world anew. So they knew that you had to abolish not just property, not just capital, not just the family, right? You needed to, you needed to abolish religion as well. Uh, so, Paul, when you're looking at Marx, you're looking at this uh, absolute commitment to the most ruthless, rigorous criticism. Now, draw the line there. And, and by the way, let me just pause it right up front. That, mean, that meant eventually the abolishment of God, the abolition of the family. Uh, the uh, abolition of all organized religion, and as you say, all current social conditions completely obliterated. So, uh, uh, you know, explicitly marriage, the family, God. Draw a line between that and uh, critical theory as it exists right now as uh, very much an intellectual force. Yeah, in fact, Marx in the Opiate of the Masses essay said that the criticism of religion is the beginning of all criticism. And in a way, it's pretty profound. Right. I mean, <laughs> the criticism of religion is the beginning of all criticism and, you know, critical theory, which is probably the fancier, more academic term for cultural Marxism. Uh, I, I prefer the term critical theory because I think critical theory nails it. When you really look at a lot of these Marxists, especially the neo-Marxists, the modern day Marxists, you find out that they, like Karl Marx, are all about criticizing. Again, what Marx said in an 1843 letter to Arnold Rouge the ruthless criticism of everything that exists. I mean, people think about that, right? People say all the time that, that uh, oh, Marx was about, you know, you know, the problem with communism is, is it doesn't understand market, markets, right? No, it, it, communism is a philosophical system. The ruthless criticism of everything that exists? Well, but be yeah. clear, be clear. And here's, here's the problem. I know what you mean by that. I know what Marx means by that. I know what the critical theorists mean by that. But an awful lot of people hearing us talk will understand uh, that what is meant by criticism here is intellectual destruction and subversion. It's not criticism like that X or Y could be improved. It's that Western civilization is nothing more than a titanic project of human oppression. Yes. Yeah. And, and the only word that Marx uses as much as, if not more than criticism, is abolition. So criticism goes with abolition. So the criticism, the ruthless criticism of all that exists, you know, in, in his case means abolition as well. And, and some Marxist scholars have translated abolition as you as you, um, you you transcend, you go beyond. But as you see in Marx and as you see in the followers, no, 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 these guys mean abolition. They mean they mean take down. And the word abolition is used throughout the manifesto. You mentioned the family. The, the, they actually use the phrase Marx and Engels. This is a verbatim quote: "Abolition of the family!" Exclamation mark. Even the most radical flare up at this infamous proposal of communists. So they could already, in, in 1848, refer to abolition of the family as an infamous proposal of the communists. And also, they write in the manifesto, the entire communist theory may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. And so right then, and there are people who say, well, the communist manifesto is a pretty good book if you just read it. It talks about sharing and love and taking care of your fellow man. Uh, and, and as one Marx biographer, Francis Ween, says, to blame the gulags on Marx and Engels and the Communist Manifesto is absurd. No, it's not. You 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 want to you want to abolish private property? You're going to have a war on your hands. I, I I mean you're going to like Marx said, forcible 
overthrow. And like he says in the 10-point the, the plan, right? Of course, to, to affect this, despotic inroads will be necessary. Of course, you're going to need force and violence and guns to abolish private property. You think people are going to give that up? I mean, that's a sacred right. It's a natural right. It's natural law. It's biblical. It's the cave, the courthouse, Judeo-Christianity. I, 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 thou shalt not steal implies that people have the right to property. You're going to have a war on your hands if you try to abolish private property, which is why, Dr. Mahler, you know, people, people who say, um, uh, Ronald Reagan said, a communist is somebody who reads Marx, and anti-communist is someone who understands Marx. And again, I hear young people say, communism's a pretty good idea if you just read it. They haven't read it. No, and, and they, they haven't read it because if they did, yeah. they'd reject it. And, and they certainly haven't read the history of its uh, attempted application. Right, um, right. You know, because Marxism has worked precisely nowhere, anytime. <laughs> You know, and no, no, nowhere. You could think you, if if even they had one case that right. they could point to, like one. I, I I mean, really, they had to have like ten, right? But but you know, th there's not even one. It, it's just absolute destruction wherever it goes. And I think that's because it, it's diabolical, frankly. Right. Well, and it's skeletons uh, everywhere you look. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, given that, you know, let's talk about this uh, kind of leftward infatuation with Marx um, or, or, or with Marxists, uh, Che Guevara, you know, where, you know, they got the Che t-shirts we'd have worn all over college campuses uh, or, or, or take the fact that uh, the Democratic Party still, still in 2020 has never really come to terms with Cuba uh, and, uh, and, 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 or Venezuela uh, for that matter. Uh, you just look at this and, and it, it just defies imagination that we have to be talking about this now. Yeah. Yeah. The Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation is now doing an annual survey that comes out every October on American views towards socialism and communism. And, and it just gets worse and worse. And it's, it's, real, it's really quite shocking. And for the record, for people who don't understand the difference, According to Marxist-Leninist theory, the society, the world history would go through these dialectical stages, right? This series of processes, stages from feudalism and slavery to capitalism, to socialism, to communism. So socialism would be the final transitionary step to communism. You know, the USSR was United Soviet Socialist, right? Socialist Republic. So the, they... Um, yeah, so socialism was this final step. Marion Smith, who runs Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, I really like this formulation. He says that when he's asked to define the difference between socialism and communism, he says, well, like as for the Christian, the Christian aspires to heaven, the socialist aspires to communism. And that's a good description because, as Pope Benedict XVI said, it, it, you know, for the communists, communism is like the New Jerusalem. It's the earthly utopia. It's the secular utopia, right? It's, it's, it's the world that they ascend to, that they try to go to, which is so ironic because, again, it's supposed to be this atheistic philosophy. Ronald Reagan said communism, that religion of theirs, and they, and they indeed treat it like a, like a religion. You know, one of the amazing things to me is, by the way, along these lines, that uh, there's just a lack of intellectual honesty amongst people who need to be grownups. Uh, for instance, you hear people talking about democratic socialism, which is an oxymoron in the truest sense, uh, and always has been. And you can, you know, so then they say, well, but but look at Europe. Okay, look at Europe. Uh, socialism, by any adequate, honest definition, means state ownership and control of the means of production. Right. That is not Sweden. No, that is not, not Norway. Well, they, they confuse their terms. Yeah. Uh, they a lot of what they're talking about in Europe should re are really social democracies. And which is which is very different from democratic socialism. In fact, the the organization that's carrying the flag for that in the United States is the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. And if you go to their website, it says right right in the, the first page of the website, they refer to themselves as the largest socialist organization in the United States. So they use the term socialist, and you know that is the organization of AOC, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Ilhan Omar. Uh, Rashida Tlaib. So they claim they have about 50,000 members. They have chapters on two to 300 college campuses. That's where the action is. Communist Party USA 
really claims only about 5,000 members. So that's not much, right? But, but yeah, it's, it's the Democratic Socialists of America. You know, that, yeah, that's, that's it. That's, that's, where, that's where it's happening. What does it tell you that in the year 2020, an idea, an ideology as horrific as Marxism is, uh, if anything, at least in American and uh, European intellectual circles, ascendant? Yeah, I think that is a sign of, uh, actually, let me put it three words, education, education, education. I think it's a product of our universities. And I mean, you and I watched this, right? You know, we, we saw and you know, fall of the Berlin Wall, 1989, collapse of the Soviet Union, 1991. And you and I talking about, I think the book dupes 10 years ago, you know, we, we kept saying, if, if young people don't start learning the horrors of communism and what's bad with this system, and to the contrary, if they continue to learn strictly positives about, about communism, we're going to be in deep trouble. You know, we're we're eventually we're eventually going to pay for this. People aren't going to know the difference. And you know, one of the surveys by Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation that I'll never forget, they asked. Uh, there were it was one third of millennials, and it was twenty eight. I think twenty eight or thirty percent of all Americans generally. Okay, brace yourselves, folks. Believe that that George W. Bush was responsible for more deaths than Joseph Stalin. I mean, that is absolutely astounding. <laughs> I mean, Alexander Yakovlev in his Yale University Press, Yale University Press book, A Century of Violence in Soviet Russia, he was given the task for Gorbachev in the 1990s of counting the skulls. He said Stalin alone annihilated 60 to 70 million people. And you think George W. Bush killed more people than Joseph Stalin? Where are you? How are you coming up? How can that happen? Well, if you're in a university in America in the in the 2000s, and the only things you hear over the past four years are Bush bad, Bush bad, Bush bad, and the only thing you learned about the Cold War is that it was about some bad guy named Joe Stalin, or, or I mean Joe McCarthy, Joe McCarthy, who harassed these uh, you know wonderful progressives called the Hollywood Ten, then you're not going to know any of these facts. So here we are. We've now reap what we've we're now reaping what we've sown. Yeah, it, it just it, it just amazes me too the hagiography of the left and 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 uh, Hollywood and all the rest. So you know, you mentioned Joseph McCarthy. It turned out that of course he was a complete alcoholic, uh, again misanthropic, uh, uh, misrepresenting uh, hate monger. Okay, you get give the, give him that. But he also turned out to have been far more right than wrong. Uh, as verified by the Verona papers and other, you know, once the KGB archives were open, it's clear that he was, I mean, he was wrong in making accusations about numbers. But it turns out when he talked about the State Department, there were a lot of communist agents in it because the communists were paying them and keeping the records. Uh, yeah, the most remarkable book on McCarthy yeah. is Blacklisted by History by my late uh, good friend Stan Evans, M. Stanton Evans. And yeah, and anyone listening right now who doesn't like what you and I just said about McCarthy, you you need to read Stan's book. Uh, you need to. If if you don't, you're not being intellectually and honest. I, and I'm not trying read it to and go through it. Read I'm not it trying to it. revive McCarthy. I'm just simply saying that the left right. is dishonest about him. They also never point to the fact that uh, that Jack Kennedy, as a United States senator never took a public stand against McCarthy when he was running for office because he needed the votes of, a, of uh, Irish Catholics in Boston who loved Joe McCarthy. And Joe McCarthy was in the wedding of Robert Kennedy, and Robert Kennedy wept at his death. Uh, yeah, they were close. They were tight. Bobby Kennedy worked for Joe McCarthy. In fact, Kennedy, Robert Kennedy's oldest daughter, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, um, her godfather was Joe McCarthy. And Joe McCarthy used to hang out at the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport. He actually dated one of the Kennedy daughters. And yeah, they were, they were, they were, they were very close. They were, they were all solid, you know, anti-communist Irish Catholics. Yeah. So that's something too, that the, that the left doesn't, doesn't like to talk about. That doesn't make it into the uh, docudramas. No, 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 it doesn't. No, no, they were tight. They were tight. Uh, Professor Paul Kingor, it's uh, always uh, exhilarating to talk with you. This is a this has been a fun conversation about a very depressing topic. Yeah, uh, very depressing. Because we care about ideas. <laughs> always good to talk to you. Yeah, we care about ideas, and uh, we agree with the late Richard Weaver that ideas have consequences. 
And uh, it's our task intellectually, not just to point to the consequences, but to work from the consequences back to the ideas. And, and you have in a body of work uh, done that. And for that, we're in your debt. Oh, well, we're in your debt. Thank you for all that you do. You're truly doing the Lord's work. And I'll continue to tune in. You, thank thank you. you for all you do. God bless you. Many thanks to my guest, Professor Paul Kingor, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmoeller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.